there've been a few thoughts I've had about the current and ongoing and most likely ongoing for a very long time conflict in Ukraine. Um I feel like okay calling a conflict is even at this point an understatement. I mean it's clearly a war. But I can't really structure them in a way that might make a coherent narrative. That was my original idea. My plan was to sit down and talk you through a coherent narrative about what I think are things we should keep in mind when we look at the coverage around Ukraine. Some of those things are historical context, a lot of those things are historical context because that's the way my mind tends to work. I tend to work in terms of historical context. But some of those things are also just skepticism, um understanding, consideration, things like that of some wider context as well as some personality traits you need to keep in mind but i i kept trying to figure out a way over the last few weeks of writing this or structuring this in a way that me, that that met a narrative format you know a start a beginning and end a three act structure almost if you will to what i'm about to give you and, and i couldn't do it so instead here here are disparate and extremely disorganized and jumbled and muddled thoughts about ukraine and russia and america and the context that all of these three countries have around the current conflict given to you by someone and these disclaimers are necessary who has not been to russia who has not been to ukraine uh who has been to america briefly has studied the region a lot but on a purely amateur level i'm not a historian by any measure nor have i ever pretended to be nor have i ever aspired to be one i just like studying stuff from history and so um this part of the world is a part of the world that has a fascinating history particularly one when you go back to a, you know just in the 20th century alone so that's an area that i like and i think the area of expertise that I can bring to this if I may be so bold to allow myself even that level of a modicum of um of expertise in this entire conversation conversation monologue really um is that I'm speaking from someone who grew up in a propagandized country for the first 10 years of my life Pakistan had a dictator and and probably the most a uh, dictatorial of our dictators president zia ul haq um i grew up in a country that had a very conflicted and complicated relationship with america and a country that had a very conflicted and complicated relationship with communism and the soviet union up until the fall of the soviet union and those are elements that kind of inform a lot of my understanding of this as well so i kind of give you all those caveats um take everything i say with a, a fistful of salt and throw that salt in my face every time i speak because that is something that you know there was a, a um a tweet i'm not the only one to tweet this out many people have tweeted this out that everyone who was an epidemiologist uh 2 months ago is now suddenly an expert on ukraine and i myself have said many times never trust anyone who can't pick out ukraine on a map um at the very least that should be the base level of requirement for some of the experts we see on tv right now but i think that there's something that is being missed in a lot of the conversations at least all the mainstream ones that i see uh it's happening in more um you know out of the norm places in corners that you wouldn't expect you know mainstream conversations to be happening you know podcasts and and things like that but overall i do think that there's something worth saying 
in this, which is why I'm saying it. I don't know why I'm giving you so many caveats. I'll just shut up now. Well, I won't shut up now. I'll actually start talking now and give you my thoughts on Ukraine. So I want to go back to, you know, I like talking about historical context for a lot of things. And I want to draw a historical context to something that, you know, will right away have everyone rolling their eyes. I mean, we're all familiar, no doubt, with Godwin's Law. Godwin's Law, for those of you who don't know, uh, in 1990, I think it was, an author, Mike, Mike Godwin, an American author, came up with the idea that any internet conversation that goes on long enough will inevitably end up with someone drawing a comparison to the Nazis or Hitler. You know, the idea being that we just can't escape these two comparisons and every conversation will always end up there. And if you've spent any time on Twitter or on Reddit, you know that to be 100% true. So... You know, I completely go into this knowing that the invocation of Godwin's law is one that needs to be done here. But I am going to invoke the Nazis and Hitler. Kind of, sort of. I'm going to start a little bit earlier than that. I'm going to start um, with the Treaty of Versailles, which was, you know, the most important of the peace treaties of World War One. It ended the World War One state of, of conflict between Germany and the Allied powers. Um and the Treaty of Versailles was a treaty that was signed with certain assumptions in place on Germany's part. Right? So let, let, let me just paint a little picture for those of you who aren't familiar with this, with this period in history as much as yeah, you know, maybe you'd like to be. Um, Germany, or at least the German narrative was after the end of the first world war that they did not lose the war that this that there was a betrayal that took place you know it's called the stabbed in the back here narrative of the war because what happened was that the germans had a massive initiative going on near the tail end of the first world war it was known as the kaiserschlacht it was this massive attack by the germans using the all all their forces that they could muster all the resources that they could muster to kind of do a final massive punch at the allied forces who were reeling as well at that point in the war even though it looked clear it was quite clear that germany was on the losing side there was still the possibility Many historians debate this, but there was still the possibility that the Germans could possibly, if not win it, end up in a place that negotiations of the peace treaty would not be as disadvantageous to them. They just want to end up in a proper negotiating position, right? But the thing that was affecting them wasn't the soldiers out in the trenches. Germany had soldiers in France. There were no French soldiers in Germany, however. Germany had soldiers in Belgium, in France, across Europe, and, and, and they did not have the same thing. What Germany was suffering was a blockade, a naval blockade by the British, by the Americans, that basically got so severe that in the last two years of the blockade, there was drought and famine severe famine in Germany, in Berlin, in Antwerp, in D Dusseldorf, in many of these major German cities. Famine so severe that one of those years, it was called the cabbage winter, when there was nothing to eat. Children were dying in the streets. They were talking about famine, the likes of which um, the world had only also seen simultaneously, perhaps in Bangladesh, um, in the famine that was caused there by Winston Churchill, and you know where, where hundreds and thousands of people were dying and moaning in the streets because of just starvation and hunger. Um, and Germany was going through this. Germany was suffering it on an extreme level. And all of the resources that the country had was still being sent into the war. 
and there was no food coming in and the soldiers were fighting with barely any weaponry left. But the idea was that there was still fight left in them. However, because of that famine and because of increasingly mutinous um, German soldiers who were being influenced by the, the communist manifesto, who were being, you know, who were in the trenches singing the Internationale, who wanted this war to come to an end, um, influencing the politicians back home. In the end, Germany came to the negotiating table in a position that later was seen as too weak by the people who did not have to make those negotiations. And that's an important thing. The people who went into that negotiation were doing the best with what they were given. And the people who judged them afterwards never had a full understanding of the limitations that they had. But what happened was Germany went into the Treaty of Versailles thinking believing in Woodrow Wilson's, you know, idea that they would be treated fairly, they would be treated equally. And at the time, Woodrow Wilson himself pointed out that the conditions of the treaty were so exorbitant that the punishment inflicted on Germany for this war was so punitive that it was guaranteeing another world war. You know, people with insight could see that even then. And that's the situation Germany ended up in at the end of the First World War. It was a country that had only been a country for a short time, by the way, but a country nonetheless that with a great deal of pride, with a great deal of nationalism, with a great deal of, of ego, that now suddenly had to eat humble pie and had to eat humble pie in very dire circumstances. We know a lot about the Weimar Republic that came after. We know about the governance of the Weimar Republic that was doing their best, and some of them, there was, there was some leadership that did an amazing job. There was an economist in the Weimar Republic who was the leader of Germany for a while, who was the chancellor of Germany, who did a remarkable job of getting the German economy back on its feet, of paying off these massive reparations as much as they could at the time. But when he died, all of his ideas died with him, and the entire German economy fell. And we've seen pictures of the hyperinflation that took place since then. They're available everywhere of people pushing wheelbarrows full of German currency worth nothing to buy a loaf of bread. This was the condition that Germany was in. The, the young were dying. The old were dying. There was despair and desperation. And in times of economic crisis and in times of um, national identity crisis... It's not very rare to see a, the rise of a government with all of the hallmarks of fascism. I don't mean fascism in that classic, you know, Italian Mussolini sense of fascism as a political ideology. I mean fascism more as, you know, the root meaning of the word fascism, which comes from the fasci, which is the, the bundle of sticks that the Roman lectors used to have in ancient Rome with which they would beat people. And the idea always was that, you know, one stick breaks easily, many sticks together are harder to break. And if those sticks are all evenly proportioned and evenly thickened and, of you know, identical... Um, and of identical makeup, then that bundle of sticks will be impossible to break. And, and therein lies the root ideology of fascism, right? And together, together we are strong, apart we are weak. And that was something that, that Adolf Hitler rode into power. The idea that Germany had been stabbed in the back, 
by the communists, by the the Jews, because in Adolf Hitler's warped and twisted brain, every single thing had to do with the Jews, um, and 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 all of these people who were betraying Germany from within by the government of the Weimar Republic, even and by France and by Poland and by all of these other countries that were laughing at Germany in its moment of defeat instead of respecting it for how close it took them to the brink of oblivion as well. And and he rode this to power. And by the way, his rise to power was not a, a an easy one. It wasn't something that was a given. You know, 10 years before he became chancellor, he was pretty much out of the game. He was considered washed up and done and he'd had his opportunity in the sun. The entire beer, beer hall putsch was seen as a complete failure and he was, he was, has been. And yet... You know, using the electoral process, using politics of fear, using things like that to his advantage, he was able, using an entire political machinery that had not existed in the kind of slickness of in use of imagery of television, of radio and all these things that it had before, um, he rode into power. And his narrative when he came to power was that we are a Germany that deserves greatness and I will take us to greatness. And one of the first things he did to sell that idea of greatness was to say, because of the war, we are fractured. There are Germans, not just in the German motherland, not just within the boundaries of Germany, but also in other places, in Poland, in other countries as well. And we must go and get them. Right? That was the narrative that he sold. The Danzig Corridor, the entire idea was there. There are ethnic Germans there who've been there for generations and we need to go and save them from the Poles who are persecuting them. This is a familiar narrative if you pay attention to the things that Putin has been saying as well. One of the things that you always wonder though is, and many historians have argued about this and psychologists and stuff, is why? Adolf Hitler could have just been the Chancellor of Germany, not have had any world wars, just stayed the Chancellor of Germany until his death, handed over the government to the next guy, whoever that would have been. Um, and, you know, and there would have been a Germany that was still ruled by the Nazi party for 30, 50 years after if they hadn't gone to war. Why go for war? Why this expansionist thing? You know, even in, in Mein Kampf, he talks in great detail about how he wants to, you know, invade the, um, invade the Slavic territories and, and subjugate the, the Russians to a kind of um, Lebensraum where they wanted to have German colonial power in these areas. This was a whole narrativity that he had that was not needed. And I think a lot of that comes down to ego and the ability or the realization on someone like his part that his power is only worthy of respecting by the people who have the ability to remove that power, which is the average German at the end of the day, if he keeps them in a state of conflict, if he keeps them in a state of war. We are less likely to question your government, to question your leader, if it is a time of crisis. You're more likely to do so in a time of peace. And I think that plays so much into the narrative being that was created by Vladimir Putin because there are such historical um, reflections here. There's that Mark Twain line, right? History doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. Who am I to argue with Mark Twain? It's a very true statement. Because if we fast forward many years to the fall of the Soviet Union, 
we end up in a very similar situation. Think about Russia. Not just the Russia you know today with the oligarchs and Putin and fur coats and oil money and, you know, websites that show things are crazy in Russia. Look at how deep these ditches are and people driving tractors down the road at high speeds. And think about the Russia, the Russian empire that has been for so long. Think about the Romanovs and the fact that they're still considered if not the most, one of the most successful dynasties in the history of the world. That we had Roman leaders constantly, all from the same lineage, from Peter the Great to Catherine the Great to Alexander the First and Nicholas the First, Alexander the Second, and on and on, and even to some smaller, more obscure ones. And despite all of them, some of them being batshit crazy and some of them being remarkable visionaries. And then the Soviet Union came along. The Soviet Union was a thing that incorporated so many of the other places like Ukraine, like all of these other countries into Belarus, Georgia, all of these within the boundaries of the Soviet Union run by this extremely brutal, extremely violent, extremely sadistic leadership, but also bound by a political philosophy and ideology that at one point was going toe-to-toe with capitalism. And it was an anyone's game. They had as good a chance of taking over the world and winning as the Americans in capitalism. We now look back at that era and we do not understand why it was seen as such an existential threat to existence. Maybe these days we have some inkling of it. But the idea that in the 60s, 50s, you know, in the 70s, even up to the 80s, We were living in a world, I grew up in a world where nuclear war between America and Russia was a, or America and the Soviet Union, sorry, was a likely outcome is a very strange thing to us indeed today. The collapse of the Soviet Union and the shock it sent through the Russian identity is something we grossly underestimate to this very day. When the Soviet Union collapsed and fell to pieces, you know, dismantled as much by Gorbachev as it was by Ronald Reagan and, and handed over to Boris Yeltsin, Russia was in a very particular condition. It was in that state where the average Russian had seen the way the West had helped rebuild and given a second chance to Germany. You have to, we forget something, by the way, that when the Berlin Wall fell, the idea of a unified Germany was still very scary to people at the time, including Margaret Thatcher. If you want to talk realpolitik, no one is more realpolitik than Margaret Thatcher at the time. She was saying a unified Germany is a dangerous thing for the world. We cannot allow it to happen. Many times Margaret Thatcher said this and was ignored by the American government, which pushed for things like the creation of a unified Germany and allowed that to happen. And Germany was seen no longer as an enemy, but as someone that had suffered enough and would now be given a seat at the table with the other great nations of the world, with the Western civilized world. And in Russia's mind, that was what was going to happen next. There's a lot of stories about Russian civilians, Russian governmental members at the time expecting America to come into Russia and help them rebuild. There were many Americans who at the time said, this is what we need to do. 
there are records of so many people George Washington University has so many transcripts from the White House of advisors to Ronald Reagan of advisors to George Bush senior and even all the way down advisors to Bill Clinton saying please do not Use this as an opportunity to dig the knife into Russia's soul. Let's help them because if we don't help them now, we will regret this later. Many people had the foresight then the way Woodrow Wilson had the foresight or, you know, 80 years earlier. And they were ignored. The crisis that took place in Russia after the fall of the Soviet Union is one that we don't think about, but the Russians have not forgotten. It was a crisis that saw the Russian life expectancy dropping by 15%. That is a huge amount. 15% life expectancy drop overnight for that to take place, for the amount of Russians to just be suffering on that level, for their currency to be devalued so much, for their entire system to be privatized, for the Russian economy to sink by more than half. Do you understand how much that means? More than half. Joseph Stiglitz, who at the time was working with the IMF, is an economist, pointed out that America destroyed the economy through the IMF because the IMF came in and instead of creating a system that would have been beneficial to Russia, they had a whole plan. Jeffrey Sachs, the economist who was working for the IMF at the time, came in and he was saying, we need to shock the system, we need to push them into a capitalist system, we need to do something that works for Russia. And instead, the IMF and the United States of America did exactly what the IMF and the United States of America did years later again in Iraq, which is privateers and carpetbaggers and opportunists went sweeping into the country and buying up everything and buying up everything and handing it over to a few group of people who they thought they could control, who they had good relationships with, who are what we know today as the oligarchs of Russia. These people who were ex-KGB or some of them still KGB at the time, who were in the government and who knew that the more they take opportunity, the more they take advantage of the current situation, the longer their wealth will last for generations to come. It is exactly the same cronyism that we have seen time and time again being encouraged by America in places like Afghanistan, in places like Iraq. We've seen this again and again. Now, I don't want at any point to make the invasion of Ukraine America's fault. I am not saying in the end, the invasion of Ukraine is no more America's fault than the entire Second World War was France and, um, and England's fault. In the end, the blame falls on Adolf Hitler in the Second World War and Putin in this new conflict that we're watching unfold, unfold before our very eyes. It is purely their responsibility. But when we look back at certain things with a historical lens, we can see sliding doors moments that we could have gone left instead of right and ended up in a very different situation. And our inability to ever learn from those sliding doors moments and continue to make the same mistakes again and again is why we are back here again. Because a Russia that was fractured, that had a soul that had been broken, a Russia that had a, a, a deep ego um, wound and a deep psychological damage to its self-respect is a Russia that sees Vladimir Putin's rise. 
and a Vladimir Putin who speaks to a macho Russian image and a Vladimir Putin who seeks to say, point out that the more control you give me, the less likely you will ever have to suffer the way you did under the democratic government, so-called democratic governments that existed right after the fall of the Soviet Union, that I will not allow the life expectancy to drop again the way it did or the economy to be in shambles the way it was. I will make Russia a rising power again bring us back to where we deserve to be. It is the same sales pitch that every dictator in history has made to his people when he was on his way up. And what we're seeing now is what a dictator does when he's on his way down. Because the Russian people have now lived under Vladimir Putin, who, by the way, is the first leader Russia has had with this much power this much control over Russia since probably Nikita Khrushchev, whose reign ended in 64. I mean, Leonid Brezhnev maybe after that from 64 to 82, but Brezhnev was never in a situation of power. It was Khrushchev who was probably the last truly powerful Russian leader with the level of control over the state and government and media and everything that, that Putin now has, possibly even more so. And what happens when he sees dissidents. Because that's one of the things we've been talking about, right? So many people have been asking, what's the end goal with this invasion of Ukraine? This sales pitch, by the way, that was so similar to the Adolf Hitler sales pitch of you know invading Poland, invading the Danzig Corridor, when Adolf Hitler said there are ethnic Germans there and we need to go and save them from the persecution that they are suffering at the hands of the Poles. It is exactly the same sales pitch that that Vladimir Putin has been making about the Russian, ethnic Russians in parts of Ukraine and in the Donbass region. It is, it is the same idea. And, and the reason why someone does that is because they see the rise of criticism in their country. They see the frustration now that educated, moneyed, healthy people are having, the middle class, nothing... A dictator fears nothing more than a middle class, a rising middle class. There's a moment in the recent protests against Putin that I found so familiar. There's a woman holding up a sign that was blank. And she held it up and the police came and carted her away as soon as she was holding up the sign. And it was a blank sign of protest. And it reminded me so much of under Ziaul Haq in Pakistan when the government decreed that no criticism of the Zia government would be allowed to be printed by any newspapers or magazines. And the editor, Razia Bhatti, of a Pakistani magazine called Herald, which was a news magazine at the time, you know, every month she used to publish an editorial in the front of the magazine. She, as a sign of protest, published a blank page. Every month there was a blank page in that magazine. And I, I, remembered, I remembered her when I saw this woman holding a blank sign of protest. Imagine a leader who is so frightened of criticism, who is so paranoid about critique, that a blank page or a blank canvas is seen as a weapon against him. That's where we are with Putin right now. So what does Vladimir Putin do in those situations? He looks for enemies abroad to slay, to unify Russia under his rule, to make Russians once again see him as the only chance they have. This is purely driven by ego. Because 
Otherwise, what else is the end goal here? At this point, it's very clear the idea of Ukraine just being a pliant client state is not going to happen, not without significant loss of life, significant destruction, further destruction done to the Russian army. And by the way, there's an entire rant I can go on about how conventional armies invading land masses is no longer clearly a thing that works anymore. We saw it fail in Vietnam. We saw the starts of it fail in Korea. We definitely saw it fail in Vietnam. We've seen it fail in Afghanistan now by the Russians and then again by the Americans. We also saw its failure in Iraq. We are seeing its failure time and time again. Um... And that's a whole separate discussion. And maybe warfare needs to, you know, the people who are conducting wars now need to at least rethink their approach to warfare. They're doing it clearly, but not fast enough. Separate rank. Sorry about that. Maybe for some other time. But what we're seeing right now is a man trying to create a legacy, a narrative in which in these twilight years of his life, he's 70, he's a very healthy 70, but he's a Russian 70. (laughs) Russian 70 is still, you know, pretty old 70. And... He's now thinking, most likely, that I want to go out on top. And on top means a Russia that loves him. And what better way to have a Russia that loves him, unquestioningly, than a Russia with enemies around the world. And Russia and he is holding a Russia together. He is holding Russia safe by the power of his will. Because that's where we are right now. Enemies around the world. That's something that we have to remember is so much of this was avoidable. So much of this. Yes, Vladimir Putin is 100% to blame for all of this. But there were decisions that America made in the last 30, 40 years that could have resulted in a very different world. And they're the exact same mistakes that other people have made when their enemy was in a submissive state. The world that this war is going to leave us with, it will be a very unique one. If, if history teaches us anything, it's going to lead to a damaged Russia more than a damaged Ukraine. I mean, Ukraine is devastated at this point, but this is, a, this is a part of the world that every time they get devastated, they rebuild. They have a sense of national identity that is awe-inspiring. But the blowback this will have on Russia when Vladimir Putin inevitably does fall will be felt for at least another generation. What we do in that moment, whether we put a foot back on Russia's neck or help them stand up so that they can then be an ally and not an enemy in the future, is a decision that when it comes time to make it, I hope we look at history and make it accordingly. That's it for this editorial edition of News Weekly. If you like this podcast, if you like News Weekly, if you like my work at all, please head over to patreon.com slash Shah. That's S-A-M-I-S-H-A-H. I'll see you back on Thursday on News Weekly, where we punch the news in the headlines weekly. 